that's what I encourage people to do. I encourage people to learn a lot, and I encourage people, if you can, to not take shit. And um, the second one is the much harder one and continues to be a struggle for me. When cancer enters your life, things get real very quickly. Today I speak with Evan Handler, actor, author, and advocate for cancer patient care. Best known for his roles in Sex in the City and Californication, Evan was diagnosed with and underwent treatment for acute myeloid leukemia in 1985 when he was 24 years old. After a two-year remission, Evan had a cancer recurrence. He received a bone marrow transplant in 1988, which he credits for saving his life. Evan wrote about his experience in the book, Time on Fire, My Comedy of Terrors, which originated in more condensed form as an off-Broadway one-man show. In this episode, we talk about Evan's encounter with cancer, which has faded with time but remains the defining event of his life. Evan shares what he learned from his own experience of navigating a bewildering, often inaccessible world of medical information, as well as a medical system and procedures that seem centered on priorities other than patient care. He also talks about his motivation for undergoing harsh treatment for cancer when his odds of survival were very low. I'm Diane McDaniel, and this is Real Cancer. Thank you, Evan, for coming in today to talk to me on the Real Cancer Podcast. My pleasure. Um, well, let's just begin with uh, having you tell me a little bit about your story of cancer. Um, I know that you had a recurrence, you had several different treatments, so if you could just go through um, your backstory. Okay. Um, when I was 24 years old, I was working, um, I guess I was working as an understudy in a Neil Simon play on Broadway. And um, uh, I was diagnosed with acute myeloid leukemia, commonly referred to as AML. Uh, I was told at that time that it was not curable, but it was treatable. So the statistics that were sort of dangled in front of me were that 65 to 75% of people could achieve a first remission. Um, those remissions averaged about a year long, I think. That's something like 50% achieved a second remission, which was usually uh, of one half the length of a first remission. And that less than 5% of those who attempted a third remission were successful. Um, so I had a two-year remission. I wound up back on Broadway starring in another Neil Simon play, um, leading to my theory that Neil Simon plays are carcinogenic. Uh, uh, I had a recurrence of the leukemia, and at that point, I had done research into different treatments, and as opposed to today, bone marrow transplantation was the experimental treatment at the time. Um, and I located a study in the New England Journal of Medicine that showed that Johns Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore had just published uh, a study showing uh, a remarkable increase in, in long-term survival, uh, apparent long-term survival, in people treated in second and third remissions with autologous bone marrow transplantation. That means using one's own bone marrow as mm -hmm. the donor marrow, taken mm -hmm. outside the body, treated, and really devastated with chemotherapy drugs to try to uh, 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 kill all the cancer cells remaining and then pretend it came from someone else. Uh, uh, so that's what I had done in 1998. Um, and, uh, you know, still going strong. 
Yeah, that's amazing. And so um, what year was it when you had your first treatment? Uh, diagnosed and began treatment in 1985. So, you know, we're going back really a number of decades. It's, uh, it's, it's a long time ago. Right. What kind of role does cancer play in your life these days? Is it, is it still in the periphery of your, of your mind? It's such a hard question to answer because um, no, no. Uh, uh, you know, it remains, if not the most defining um, era of my life than, and events of my life than certainly uh, uh, up among them. Mm-hmm. Um, but I say it's hard to describe because you're talking about something that has faded so much from what it once was. Right. And yet still remains the really defining uh, events in my life. I always speculated back then, and I'll jump back just a bit. It's also the the age that I was diagnosed and went through these things at was was so influential upon how it affected me and and uh, uh, what kind of impact it had. Twenty four years old, I was I was already seven years. Uh, I'd been living on my own for seven years already. I was five years into a, a thriving career. So um, while I was in my own mind, an established adult, it's a very, very, very young age right. to to be told it's most likely all over, and these are the things you can do to try to see if you can sneak through. Um, so it had huge, huge impact upon my 30s, as you can imagine, and into my 40s. And I speculated through that whole time that nothing would ever push it out of that primary spot other than perhaps the birth of a child. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, uh, there's another whole story that's even more remarkable than my own survival, which is the conception of my daughter, Sophia, mm-hmm. um, which, statistically speaking, is actually more unlikely than my own existence. Um, <laughs> wow. uh, uh, but while, while parenthood is the central focus of my life, in spite of living with Sophia now for 10 years, um, I still think my psyche is, is I'm sorry to say, largely defined by spending the ages of 24 through 29 or 30, um, y- y- you know, in grave danger and, and with the possibility of, of my quick demise mm-hmm. actually, you know, there and probable for an right. extended, extended period of what I think most people experience or most people in our Western cultures experience as uh, you know, the prime of your of your youthful adulthood. So, what uh, what kind of person did the experience make you? I'm I'm oddly ill-equipped to say that. What kind of person is it? Or maybe <laughs> I just don't want to get into that. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, to track it chronologically, when I was in the depths of it. And recovering from a bone marrow transplant, which you know was a year-long recovery, really back then, I remember having vivid fantasies of, of becoming a boxer. I wanted to, uh, I wanted to beat the shit out of people. Mm. Um, and uh, uh, then what happened is um, I went right back to being an actor. Mm-hmm. You know, and and in fact, an oddity of my treatment was there was a, a, a slim amount of chemotherapy treatment that was withheld because my blood counts hadn't recovered adequately. Right. And I got a call, do you want to go to an audition at the public theater, the New York Shakespeare Festival for a, 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 
uh, a production of a Shakespeare play directed mm-hmm. by James Lapine that was going to star um, Chris Reeve and Diane Venora and Alfre Woodard and Mandy Patinkin. Um, and I went and I got cast from my first audition back and actually had to leave the production because my blood counts recovered during rehearsal enough to take this treatment. And, and But the oddity for me was that my acting career was the most secure part mm-hmm. of my life, even more secure than my life itself. Yeah. Um, and really went back to the same relentless pursuit of the same career and path that I had before. So uh, that's either incredible foolishness or determination and stubbornness or just a return to uh, what I had wanted and, and what was supposed to be. And, and I, don't, I don't really know how to um, untangle that mystery necessarily. But... Um, uh, what kind of a person did it make me? I mean, it made me a traumatized person. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, that's the honest truth. That's what it made me. Uh, I'm a guy who lived through the trauma that I've disca- described from, from 24 to 29. And I don't think uh, I was aware of the ways that that was manifesting itself through my 30s and into my 40s. I'm probably more aware of the ways that it manifests itself now. Mm-hmm. Um, and, those, and those are probably much diminished in intensity. Right. from how it was in my 20s and 30s and 40s. Uh, but you could you could get some vivid descriptions from any number of women that I dated during those years, I'm sure, when I was really largely unaware of how impacted I was by that trauma and uh, what a reaction to that trauma most every action I took probably was. Mm-hmm. Right. So uh, the... What's given you perspective is maybe your age, uh, the distance from the, the trauma, having becoming a father. Yeah, among a multitude of other things, every, every life experience. I think um, the, the difficulty of incorporating those events when they were so, so different than what any of your peers were going through mm, yeah. was a very different thing than incorporating them now as distant memories and when I live amongst a population where it's not such an extraordinary thing to happen to someone, mm-hmm. as you know yourself. I mean, and, and in fact, what you're doing in, I mean, I'm 56 years old. What you're doing is you're, you're trying to come to terms with the fact that you see peers dying all the time now. And it's just not that extraordinary from 55 years old beyond that, that uh, people drop off. Right. Um, even, even if you still hope that everybody makes it to 75, 85 and beyond. It's just not that extraordinary for somebody 64 to have a heart attack and die. So uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a second coming to terms with mortality of realizing, oh, I'm getting to the age now where it wouldn't shock anybody that much. Mm-hmm. But here I am. I feel like I've barely recovered from when it would have been an outrage. Right. <laughs> where, where was the in-between part? <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, your advocacy for... Uh, patient care. I know that you have written uh, a book that really detailed your outrages that you had at your own um, care and uh, how important it was for you uh, to advocate for yourself. In fact, in in just talking to us about your your story, you talked about reading um, some research and following up on it yourself and and finding the right care that that did really make a difference in your life. Tell me a little bit about your journey from being a patient to being an advocate for yourself. 
When I was uh, really first faced with uh, the diagnosis and, and going through it, there was a very, to me, there was a very clear uh, series of choices that had to be made because the, there was the question of why, is, is there enough justification to walk this hellish path to begin with? What are the chances of survival? What is the brutality of the treatment? And back then, bone marrow transplantation really was quite quite brutal, and and the treatment for leukemia was more brutal than most because you're not attacking a tumor with the bone marrow and blood making capabilities being a side effect. You're attacking the bone marrow and blood making capabilities, right. so you're reducing a person to. Uh, uh, I mean, the terminology for bone bone marrow transplantation is. It sounds like hyperbolic cartoon language, but it is what are called super lethal doses of chemotherapy, amounts that they would never give a breast cancer patient because mm -hmm. then they'd have to intervene and save their lives from the damage to the bone marrow. Right. So you're giving super lethal doses of chemotherapy drugs after which a rescue dose of bone marrow is given. So essentially you're poisoning someone to death and then saving their lives, hoping that what r resurrects itself are healthy cells as opposed to unhealthy cells. Um, so it was pretty clear to me that I needed um, some justifications and, and inspirations for why this might be worthwhile. And, 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 and I never, ever latched on to a lot of the encouragement I was fed um, uh, to embrace everything happens for a reason mm -hmm. philosophies. That never felt comfortable to me. It always felt like a bit of an assault and an insult to me, actually. I, I didn't think there was any good reason for it. Um, I didn't think there was any value to it. I just thought there was, uh, what can you do with this if you're unlucky enough that it happens to you? And I thought pretty immediately that uh, there was value to simply existing as an example to others. Because there's also the question of, are you going to try to conceal this? Mm -hmm. I, was, I was not a well-known guy, except in New York circles. Um, it's not like anybody was going to be writing articles about the fact that Evan Handler was hospitalized, but it certainly was noticed by that community. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, existing as an example of something that could be achieved, while people had gone to some lengths to impress upon me the unlikeliness of, of achieving it, was of value. Mm -hmm. That even if people are telling you this is a long shot, you, you can actually do this. And I... I think I decided pretty, 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 pretty close to immediately that that um, uh, if I was going to walk through that fire and try to emerge, that, that that would be the value that could come from that. And then in the midst of that, I really was quite shocked, uh, uh, stunned by the difficulty of navigating the medical system, the impenetrability of even finding information, and... Uh, the lack of generosity of many in the medical community in helping you do that, in sharing information. In fact, there were really tremendous efforts made to conceal it. Um, right, and now everybody, I mean, a problem is that people Google everything, and, and it, that can be so difficult and destructive and misleading, but at that, this time, there was no Google. That's right. There was no, there was no internet. Um, personal computers weren't even all that common. I, I got... Uh, an early laptop um, in 1985 when I was in the hospital, which is where I started writing. Um, so getting hold of the New England Journal of Medicine, 
you had to be given it by a physician. It's not, you know, you think you weren't even allowed to subscribe as a, as a civilian, mm-hmm. which is pretty bizarre, as if it's military secrets being kept. Um, so I, I, I was very outraged by that, and, and, and uh, not only that, but really every, every, every manner of, you know, there's, there's a book filled with the outrages that I felt of, of just the systems of delivery of the medical care. Um, and I found that I had a certain eloquence in describing it. And people have responded to that in every which way. There's a lot of patients that are very grateful for it. There are a lot of physicians who feel it's accurately described. And there are a lot of people who, who have, you know, described m- my book as the whinings of an overprivileged survivor. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I mean, everybody's got their own perspective on that. I, I didn't understand why anyone wouldn't want to hear useful feedback as to how things could be made better. Mm. Um, there are those who, who consider every critique an attack, and there are those who um, welcome insight into how you're experiencing things and, and whether things don't make sense to you. I tend to gravitate and appreciate the second group more than the first, and I certainly recommend to everyone that those are the medical professionals that they seek out. I think those are the carpenters and auto mechanics you ought to seek out as well. Right. And I think people actually do that more in terms of their plumbers and auto mechanics than they do in terms of their physicians, which is another oddity. But all that said, as I then came to speak about it more and more years afterward um, I, I, and, and tried to hone down what I was trying to say, I realized, well, you, you, you do have an inherent conflict. You know, you continually in the in the arena of medicine you have a newly outraged traumatized population meeting a population that has come to see what's happening to the newly outraged person as an everyday occurrence mm-hmm. and uh, and the outrage and horror as something that they would really rather not get involved with right. that they'd rather help solve the solve the, the medical issue and and you know please please keep that out of the examination room and, and address that on your own. And I can give you a list of people to see about those feelings. Right. Um, and how do you reconcile that? How do you, how do you perhaps create uh, a community of medical professionals that can tolerate the completely understandable and natural uh, uh, outrage and horror that patient A or the family of patient A are experiencing? And that's just not not just medical care. I mean, that's you know has to do with a a, a, a diagnosis of, of any kind. Um, and I think that's still a real vivid conundrum. Um, and and not only that, but how do you how do you keep medical professionals who really are essentially doing the same work as frontline wartime physicians or nurses? Uh, uh, where it's understood that people need to be rotated away from the front mm-hmm. um, and, and c- cannot m- remain on the front endlessly. But that's not the approach that's taken in, in a medical institution like a hospital. Right. Um, people just continue to treat patients and to cre- tr- treat traumatized patients and to be exposed to that trauma uh, relentlessly as opposed to with any kind of rotation away and back, away and back. So. So there, there, there's logic that is brought to bear in other arenas than the medical world that, that I came to think, well, maybe this needs to be looked at in a new way. Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you think that somebody who hasn't experienced um, the level of uh, fear and uh, trauma that somebody who's receiving a, a cancer diagnosis, especially as one as, as dire as yours, could 
relate to that? No, um, no, <laughs> I don't think so. And I, and I don't think they should, and I don't think they should aspire to. Mm-hmm. There are definitely people who are, for whatever reasons, either, well, more gifted at being able to respond mm-hmm. in a way that contains sympathy and empathy and outrage on your behalf without it becoming maudlin, without it becoming intrusive, and, and without it including consoling them mm-hmm. than others. And thank goodness for those people. Um, but I saw it also so much in terms of, of uh, my identity even then was very solidly as a, a very ambitious actor. So, so uh, initially there was the thought of, um, will this make me more able to portray certain things? Will this broaden my emotional range of, mm. of what I can bring to things? And I had some fantasies of that, but I also realized I don't ever want to be asked to portray anything like somebody receiving this kind of news because mm. um, there's there's no faking that. Right. Although I have seen people, you know, better actors than me, uh, who, who, who have uh, portrayed real devastation in ways that that have startled me to my core um even after going through what i went through but largely i think these are uh terrors and emotions that you you only really know um until you find yourself in that kind of situation and 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 uh uh is it desirable that more people uh, experience it so that they can be more compassionate to the people who haven't i don't i don't really think so i think it's uh, I think denial of death, <laughs> unless it's really taken to ex- an extreme, which maybe American culture is, as opposed to some other cultures. Right. But uh, I, I have come to see denial of death as a good thing mm-hmm. and a benefit. Um, I, I don't think my life has been improved in any way by my confrontations with mortality at 24 years old mm-hmm. and, and living in the face of it really vividly through 30 years old uh yeah i mean i've tried to make use of it in ways that it could then be advantageous i've tried to use it to contribute something positive to the world but i i i'm i'm pretty relentless in my insistence that it it, i never see it as a good thing that happened yeah i'm just not going to be that guy yeah so let's talk about that a little bit about um your work in advocating for patient care for others? Um, well, uh, I, I wrote the story as, as vividly as I could and, and started to perform it, um, first as an off-Broadway theater piece, uh, and then published the book, but then uh, had opportunities to go and speak either portions of it at medical institutions, um, at symposiums, for companies that did architecture in creating medical facilities, Mm. um, children's hospitals, things like that. Um, And uh, as part of certain universities' programs, Baylor University has a program um, that I appeared at yearly for a while called Compassion and the Art of Medicine, Mm -hmm. I think it is, Um, trying to give some component of of that to physicians in training. And I think that's where the um, um, whinings of an overprivileged survivor comment came from. Uh, uh, one of the first-year students in, in their anonymous uh, uh, critiques of my, my presentation gave that. Uh, and, and speaking you know, publicly and on the radio and in any number of settings. Um, uh, 
And it's interesting because I, as much as people have responded to that and as much as um, I think it's an empowering message and, and, and the, the message originates with one of the most simplistic uh, uh, slogans anywhere, which information is power. Mm-hmm. You, you know, if you're going to, there is a certain population that's more comfortable handing their issue over to an authority figure. There are people who, who don't want to go on the internet and find out things, and they just want to be told what to do. Right. And uh, take this medicine and don't call me in between visits and come back uh, three weeks from Tuesday. Um, I, I don't think that gives you the best chances of overcoming something that's really dicey to begin with. But it might be a more comfortable way to go through and, and, and uh, most likely slowly slide away. Uh, and it doesn't mean that you can't recover doing it that way either. I don't mean to say that. Right. It's not your approach. It, it, it's not my approach, and it, it, it's also easily provable that it's not the most advantageous approach. Uh, uh, aggressive, investigative, and and active patients do better. Mm-hmm. Um, and advocating for oneself and refusing to participate with and tolerate hospital procedures that are debilitating is helpful. Um, uh, so I did you know, try to learn a lot about the illness and what was offered. I was very lucky in that one of the first places that I visited, uh, which was Fred Hutchinson Cancer Center in Seattle, Washington, they're the ones who told me about that New England Journal study. Hmm. They said, you really ought to get yourself to Baltimore. This year, we're investigating such and such. We're going to be looking at monoclonal antibodies and how they affect, and that's not going to help you. Mm-hmm. But here's where they're doing something that would. And so it, it, it was, it did involve our travel. It involved us having the money to travel. Um, but we were also pointed in the right direction pretty quickly by somebody who was kind enough and informed enough himself to do that. So luck played no small part. Yeah, that's for sure. Um, but that's what I encourage people to do. I encourage people to learn a lot, and I encourage people, if you can, to not take shit. And um, the second one is the much harder one and continues to be a struggle for me. Uh, that's where I become disgusted with myself and can't believe that I haven't been completely transformed into a person that finds that easy. I mean, I, I, I have sat in doctors' waiting rooms for decades since and had a really hard time um, saying what I needed and what was wrong. You know, uh, uh, I remember this is going back many years already, but it was many, many years after my illness. But I was in New York. I had bronchitis or pneumonia or something, and I was in a waiting room, and they told me it was my turn to go back in the examination room and and put on a gown, which I usually never do. And I said, well, actually, I'd rather stay here in the waiting room. It's really cold back there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but then the doctor won't know where to find you, I was told. And I said, well, doesn't the doctor have legs? And the woman looked at me, you know, with real outrage in her eyes. I mean, Mm -hmm. the doctor could walk through the hall and see that I'm I'm here. And why would you want me? I have 103-degree fever. Why why should I go sit in a cold room where it's uncomfortable when I'm, you know, seven yards away from where the doctor is? Uh, But the level of of disgust and disdain that that's received with is, Mm -hmm. is, is startling. And the level of, for me courage and audacity that it takes just to say that and just to say no I won't sit where it's uncomfortable I'm going to sit here where it's a little bit better Mm -hmm. is is shocking Um, there may be people who find that easier you know to assert themselves but I I, I certainly uh, uh, 
encourage people to and, and, and promote it. There's probably a better way of saying it than doesn't the doctor have legs. Uh, <laughs> uh, there's, there's, there's probably a more patient uh, approach that would, that would lead to um, uh, uh, a better result. Yeah, than, better outcome. Than, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'm sure you talk to people who are at the beginning of their journey um, and what sort of things do you tell people who come to you and, and say, I'm, I'm starting down this path? Well, uh, uh, for whatever it's worth, I, I will confess that I, I, I don't talk to that many people one-on-one. Mm-hmm. Um, I try to avoid it. It's not something I'm hugely comfortable with. Right. Um, I, 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 I don't tend to innately be an optimistic guy about myself or anyone's prospects. Right. If I hear about someone freshly diagnosed with a grim uh, situation, uh, my initial gut reaction is, oh, 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 that's horrible. The poor bastard hasn't got a chance, hmm. even though I'm living proof of the opposite. Right. So I write books and I write articles <laughs> and I speak on podcasts and I say what I know to be true, right. that you actually can escape just about anything. And uh, my, my own lack of uh, confidence in any particular individual other than myself to do so shouldn't be a reflection of, of what's true. Um, but, but I also realize that I'm really better speaking to groups than I am going into somebody's hospital room. Right. Um, and that's okay. And I, and I say that because it should be known that it's okay. You know, there, there may be people, there are, there are plenty of people who are probably incredibly rousing and inspirational one-on-one and who wouldn't necessarily be able to hone that message to, to, to reach a lot of people. Right. So, uh, and that doesn't mean I don't do it. You know, if, if um, I, get a, I get asked all the time, this is one interesting thing, a lot of people will ask me to speak to their friend. Mm-hmm. Um, he just got diagnosed with such and such, will you talk to him? And I have come to tell those people I'm happy to talk to them if they reach out to me themselves. Right. Because... I already have a history of phoning those people up and finding them to be uncomfortable on the phone with me. Yeah, like, well, like they're really not that interested in it. Oh, I, I don't know. I, I can't. I can't get inside what's making them sound that way. But it almost seems like the friend wanted to do them a favor that maybe they weren't that keen on. Yeah. And uh, well, uh, people feel like they they want to do something for their friend, and so yeah, they they think yeah, I've made yeah. this connection. But the the right. friend who's actually going through the experience is like, not right now, please. It's that, too much. Exactly. So I I say you know have them call me, and and almost no one ever does. Yeah. And I don't know if that's because they take it as a brush off or that really the friend doesn't really want to reach out personally and, and, and make that connection. Right. Well, I was going to ask you about a connection between your work as an actor and your um, your writing and your advocacy. But I think you answered that. It's it's all really kind of connected in terms of um, where you're you feel comfortable uh, interacting with people and where you feel like you can be the most effective and uh, helpful. Um, I mean, I also know that I, you know, I came from such a storytelling background. Not only had I been an actor for years and years in New York already, even at 24 years old, but I had been deeply involved with new, new plays, new American plays, uh, going to Sundance Institute Playwrights Lab um, and Screenwriters Lab and working with new material and watching people try to hone what they were trying to say and, and observing and learning about principles of dramatic storytelling. So, so at least when I 
suddenly started to write and try to write and tell my story, I knew that it was better to show than tell, that if I could dramatize a situation and put it into dialogue, that it was better than simply description. Mm -hmm. um, but I also became really, really interested in the ways that these stories are almost always told. Uh, Memoir has become a much, much, much more mainstream medium than it was even prior to my publication in 1996. Right. Um, but back then it was pretty rare to see something that didn't fall easily categorizable into some very familiar genres. There was the religious redemption story. There were dozens and dozens of the tried and tried and tried but couldn't quite make it story. And, I mean, I get it. You, you, you know genre storytelling has been proven to be more accepted by the masses. So if it easily fits into tragedy, try, 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 heroic effort doesn't quite make it, that's more sellable. You're going to get more people in the theater. Mm -hmm. um, but to my knowledge, there still is only one motion picture release in the United States that's been a story of someone getting well. And it happened very, very recently. And... Uh, wouldn't wouldn't didn't concentrate on the things that I might have specifically, and I'm talking about the film Fifty Fifty, mm -hmm. uh, but at least was a big stride in the direction of um, using humor in the film and a story about someone who got well. Mm -hmm. And I would think in an era, uh, which I think you could pretty easily call our, our era an era of survivorship of any number of things, but but people do last a lot longer and recover from a lot more. So you have huge populations of people who've gotten well from things. You have multiples of that population of people who've helped people recover mm -hmm. or try to recover. And, and it, it still grieves me that there are so few stories, uh, told in film at least, of, of um, what it takes to uh, make it through and survive. Uh, but not only that, um, what it means to the life afterward, mm -hmm. having mm -hmm. gone through it. And, and, uh, and what I'm really getting at is what is the cost of survivorship? Mm -hmm. There's a fantasy that I took into my illness of, and I think I'm quoting another movie, a war movie. Um, if, I can, if I get out of this, everything from now on is just going to be gravy. Right. And you think that's what it's going to be, and that's not the case. And there's a big disappointment and a big disappointment in oneself mm. when you realize, no, actually, it's not just all gravy. I mean, I, I know I'm lucky to have this, and I do feel the gratitude, but now I'm living life with the complication that I have this history and this terror and this trauma that I bring to every interaction. Mm -hmm. And that actually, you think by staving off the ultimate loss, your life will be loss-free, but in actuality, the situation is the longer you live, the more loss your life is going to include. Because life, amongst everything else that's wonderful, is nothing but a compounding, ever-growing series of losses of, of everything and everyone around you. And that's the bargain of survivorship that I don't see really spoken about or told in, in, in uh, narrative, fictionalized storytelling. Right. Well, yeah, I think it's, you, you think if I survive this, I'm going to be grateful every day. But every day there are just irritating little things that happen. And big things that happen. And big things. Um, um, you know, that's what, you know, life, life, life is uh, uh, in enjoying the beauty while managing the crises. And, and um, 
just because something isn't the biggest crisis you've ever faced doesn't mean it doesn't qualify as a crisis. Mm-hmm. And 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 uh, you have to strike that bargain that 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 uh, uh, if if you want to be around for a long time, you're going to encounter significant losses uh, every every step of the way. Yeah, that's right. Well, thank you, Evan, for coming in. That's where we're going to end, me talking about loss and how, how bad life is. Uh, <laughs> okay, did, did you have something cheerful no, you wanted to add at the end? It's my own fault. It's my own fault. That's where I led us. I, and, 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 and really, I, I led us there because what I, what I, the point I wanted to make is that, that I, I tried to actually find a niche of storytelling of the untold version of the story. And that's the aspect of it that I still find undertold. And, and, and I think there's service in, in saying um, there's this painful truth that could be beneficial to examine. Right, exactly. Exactly, for, for the survivors, so they sort of know what they're getting into. And if that's not what you want, then you don't come to me, that's all. <laughs> <laughs> all right, thanks so much. Okay. That's it for today's episode. Please subscribe to Real Cancer wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love to hear from you. Connect with us via Twitter at RealCancerPod and email us with your episode ideas at RealCancerPodcast at gmail.com. If you know of someone who'd be a terrific guest, I'd love to know about it. Until next time. I'm Diane McDaniel.